had a Gumby moment. A what? I got my head stuck in the cupboard. <laughs> uh, all sorted? Yes. Sorry, door went and uh, I was all prepared and then I dropped something and then I leant on the keyboard and deleted our entire notes. So I was, <laughs> I was trying to restore it all. Yeah, good work. Yeah. Right, I'm just um, first business of the day. Oh, buzz keeps occurring on my microphone. Can you hear me all right, by the way? Yeah, how are you doing with sending that back? <laughs> Fine. Really? Welcome to North v South, the podcast that is and isn't about uh, microphone hum design. I'm Jonathan Elliman, and on the other end of the line is Rob Turpin, and this is, we're a year in now. And uh, it's episode 44. Cheers. I just bought myself a beer. Oh, what have you got? I've got uh, Zeus IPA, the god of beers. Yeah, of course. It's uh, from um, the Coastal Brewery in Cornwall. Right. And uh, it's very nice. It's quite a strong one, 6.2. Yeah. I've got got a beer, although I'm not meant to have them. It's a 5.9. So it's it's up with yours. We've it's, both gone strong, yeah. It was a it's a goose IPA, mm. um, something good coming out of America. Yes, uh, and on 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 special offer. So marvelous. Yeah, I'm going to pour mine. Hang on, here we go. Very nice. Lovely. So how are you, John? Cheers. Cheers. Yeah. Happy anniversary. <laughs> it's been a wonderful first year together. I'm sorry, I didn't get you a card. <laughs> For a for a uh, a, um, uh, a a podcast that's meant to be um, confrontational, it's been surprisingly lacking in it. <laughs> yeah, we don't really live up to the uh, the title, do we? Not really. I don't think our title says anything, which is probably due, puts our um, does our popularity no <clears throat> no uh, no credit. <laughs> <laughs> Hang on, our oh, popularity. Yeah, we don't. Have any. Yeah. <clears throat> No, but it's been good. I've enjoyed the last year. It's uh, it's always good to chat to you, and it's been it's been good. It's been a good excuse to talk about stuff that perhaps would get overlooked. And how's your week been? Uh, my week has been okay. When did we last record a show? It went out uh, last week, didn't it? But we recorded it a couple of weeks ago. Yeah. Um, so we've we've met up since we recorded the last show. Yeah, I'm very confused because I only just edited it, um, and uh, <laughs> and then we had it. We had a three week break, so I'm trying to get my head around doing a podcast again. Yeah, we uh, uh, we we met up for beers and lunch. Uh, you, me, and Spudlington, Nick Barber, over in Alton, and uh, you and I had a little practice on your shiny new printer printing out some some of my illustrations which was good fun it's looking looking good quite exciting yeah uh what else have i been up to uh working in spitalfields again uh went for a stroll yesterday and found i don't know how i'd missed it the rest of the time i'd walked around spitalfields market but there's a, a 14th century charnel house that you can um, go have a, a look in there's some steps leading down from the plaza yeah. Really? Into like a into like a glass walled. It's only like a corridor. We've got and skeletons look, in there. 
No, they've all, they must have all been reinterred somewhere. Mm. But um, you just kind of look into the the ruins. But it's kind of a reminder of that that, that bit of the the city of London is is just steeped in history. It's, it's sad there's not more of it kind of on show. Yeah, <clears throat> I can't say um, the same for Basingstoke that I was in today. <laughs> <laughs> Does that not have uh, deep historical significance? Well, no, not the same. Uh, old Basing, yeah, English Civil War, yeah, okay, but so. uh, but not no, not Waitrose in Basingstoke's <laughs> town centre. Sorry, yeah. I digress. Never mind. Um, what have been? That's kind of it, really. I've been working, not getting enough illustration done because I don't get home till late. Um, sorting out some books for my holiday, so I'm getting a nice little stack of books to take with me. Just ordered some new luggage, which is bright orange, which is relevant to tonight's show. Uh, um, is that a new Trump uh, range? Yes. Yeah, it is. It's the best. Made luggage. out of human skin. Yeah. Um, yeah, that's it, really. Mm. What about you? Uh, I have. Um, I've I've been looking after my daughter the last couple of days. Yeah. Yeah, I haven't been working. I've finished all my projects. What? All, all my big projects, yeah. And that's the first time since I started in 2013, 14, 13. I can't remember. Let's make it clear. That's not the first time you've finished a project since 2013. <laughs> it might well have it? been, yeah. It's just the first time you've finished, you've got to a point where they're all finished. Yeah, yeah. And I just got sort of client ticking over work. So I'm starting work on all my stuff, um, which has been cool. great. And uh, But I didn't realise that the um, the childminder was, was off this week. So uh, mm. I've been somewhat forestalled in, uh, in kicking off project. Uh, that must have been good fun, though. Spending yeah. time with Kitty. We had a brilliant time today. We've been to a trampoline park, Ooh. which I, you know, obviously never been to one before. But they are really good fun. <laughs> is that one of the places where kind of pretty much the whole floor of a warehouse is turned into trampolines? Yeah. Wow. I yeah. saw one of those on the telly the other day and thought I must go there. Yeah, it's really good, and it was three pounds. So oh, yeah. it's a really nice, cheap way of uh, doing a bit of exercise and it was pretty empty and kitty and i just bounced around everywhere <laughs> maybe we should have our next northeast south field trip it's so good they have they've got a big pit uh of airbags so you can if you get enough speed up from like three or four trampolines away you can pile your way into <laughs> the middle of these airbags uh yeah so i i had a i had lots of fun so yeah good. no we've had a great day I'm absolutely exhausted because she got me up at four. So, um, yeah. Well, she obviously just didn't want to waste a minute. No, obviously not. So if I nod off halfway through, like I did reading her story yesterday, <laughs> <laughs> then uh, then please, please excuse me. But uh, no, I'm feeling pretty perky. Pretty good. Good, 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 good. Uh, yeah, so it's been a year since we started and... Um, We've made many promises, many commitments that we've broken, uh, all of them. Uh, so we're, we're going on as the British government might go on in the future now. So um, just 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 warning you that any promises we might make in the future will not be adhered to in any way, shape or form. Yes, then none of our promises are binding. <laughs> <laughs> uh, no, other things I've been doing. Um, I've been watching a bit of telly. Uh, I've just finished a season, which I very rarely finish seasons, but um, I called it, I wrote down here Stinky Pete. I don't think that's right. It's called Sneaky Pete. 
Uh, it's oh, a I, new I series no on, on, on Amazon uh, starring Giovanni Ribisi. I have no idea who that is. Uh, he was in Friends. He was the weird brother that would occasionally turn up and he was in um, Saving Private Ryan. Oh, okay, yes. He's I a do cause, sort of is. quirky Steve Buscemi type. Yeah, kind of character actor. Yeah, he's a character actor. So it's good. It's it's it tries to be a bit Fargo, but doesn't quite get it right. Um, right. But yeah, well worth well worth. Oh, I enjoyed it. Yeah, it was oh, good. Yeah, I love a, I love a peek at so, that. He's kind of a con man. Yeah. Um, and uh, I've been watching the world's most awful architecture program. <laughs> I was going to the world's most extraordinary homes, which is on BBC One, I think, or two. Yeah. Uh, Piers Taylor, who's been on some other show, the Ten K House, which is a great show where Ten K Hundred K. Is it? No, it wouldn't yeah. be 100k. Yeah. No, 10k. How's build, build a house for 100,000, not 10k? You build no. a tent for 10k. Oh, no, but they have little projects where they'll do a kitchen or whatever. Oh, okay. Am I doing so it wrong? started off with the program called the 100k house. Oh, did it? Sorry. He did, yeah. Building kind of flat pack, uh, low impact houses. Right. Oh, yeah, because I know nothing about him. He, he He's, um, yeah, he, he, he's. Let's be he, honest, he's a poor man's Kevin McLeod. Yeah, yeah, no, he 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 does love himself, um, and his fashion sense is is beyond Kevin, isn't it? Beyond <laughs> beyond the McLeod, but um, but he's an interesting chap, and I love yes. his sketching and the way that he talks about buildings. But they've partnered him with um, Caroline Quentin, yeah, which just ruins the whole program because you're walking around some of the most incredible buildings, and I know it's all a bit. Uh, elitist and you know these are perfect pads of people who've probably trodden on a lot of other people to get where they are today but some of them are just extraordinary especially the new zealand ones are just blown me away um yeah uh, yeah. so um it's a great series if you could just mute her out really because i don't think she brings anything so she's quite annoying in it isn't she yeah i mean really it makes me want to take my shoe off and throw it at at the television yeah, I've got no problems with her as a comedy actress, but she just seems ill-suited to that show. Mm. Yeah, but um, lots of but slow-mo the, drone shots and yeah. uh, all that kind of stuff. But there is some really fascinating uh, sort of just just the attention to detail on some of the design elements. Um, yeah, is, is, I love that place in Greece that was kind of cut into the hillside. You see that one? No, I haven't seen the latest uh, episode. We missed that's it. That's very good. Um, but I, re- I, I have enjoyed a lot of it. I loved the the one in America that was like a lift shaft that was in the middle of some woods. Oh, I didn't see that um, one. Yeah, it's fa- fabulous. Some catching up to do. Yeah, um, yeah. So, well, well, if you haven't watched it, give it a give it a, give it a watch. Mm. Um, yeah. Should we uh, should we get onto some news? Yeah, there's there's been there's been quite a lot, hasn't there? Um, depends where we go. I, I haven't read your news, so I don't know what what you're what you're going to report. Well, uh, I'll start with um, Jonathan Barnbrook, one of uh, Britain's leading graph designers and typographers. He's revamped uh, his website barnbrook.net with all his recent work and obviously a kind of full history of his stuff and archive, which is makes for pretty fantastic viewing. He's, you know, very, very prolific. Uh, and he's also created jonathanbarnbrook.com, which is a kind of a repository of all his political and activist type work. So lots of posters of his 
uh, type faces. Um, but it's just fantastic to kind of look at his work uh, on mass. He was one of the most influential designers on me when I was at art college. There was a book called Typography Now, which was edited by, I think, Rick Pointer. Um, and it was uh, it was almost like a, a Bible of influence for kind of people my age, I guess. It had lots of new cutting-edge design in it, and there was lots of Barnbrook in there. Um, and I've kind of followed his work on and off ever since. But if you like Jonathan Barnbrook, are you like political... Uh, design um, those two websites are well worth having a look at some beautiful work in there oh, I'm going to have uh, an explore of that I really haven't, yeah. um, so haven't, haven't looked into that at all barnbrook.net and jonathanbarnbrook.com for his political stuff well my next story uh, actually follows on from uh, Barnbrook because it's the uh, Beasley design competition which apparently is a prestigious design competition of which I know nothing about as always um, I wonder if it used to be called something else when it was less prestigious. <laughs> well, I just wonder if that's a, a, a sponsor. Is it just the dis- – oops. Is I mean, it just sort of the designer of the year, the design of the year? Worldwide. But uh, Beasley, it sounds like some kind of um, uh, sort of suburban department store, doesn't it? Beasley. Welcome to <laughs> yeah. Beasley's. Beasley's of Basingstoke. <laughs> Stoke. <laughs> we have uh, come up with a design competition. Anyway, they um, – they have awarded the better shelter, which we've spoken about before, which is the IKEA uh, prefabbed concrete shelter for refugees. Um, they've awarded it above and second place um, Black Star album cover, which is oh, Barnbrook, okay. um, which they call the uh, the artwork on the cover of the album. Uh, but I think his design goes a bit deeper than that. Um, it does. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's a little bit unfair, but uh, yeah, congratulations to IKEA. Um, it's a wonderful um, design for a really um, I just think you know making stuff that helps other people let's just stop there you know that's you know something doing something for somebody else is what I wrote wrote down in the notes isn't that good it is it's brilliant and this um, impressed me more than I thought it would originally because quite often you see these designs for humanitarian things like this oh yeah they've, they've, and that's they've, all they end up being it's yeah. just a design and nothing ever happens and, and there's lots of slow-mo thing. stuff around them yeah. and you know it's all yeah um but, but this is actually but, doing the yeah work. i think there's there's uh 10 or twenty thousand of these out um in the world now sort of helping in um um sort of disaster zones and refugee camps um and uh yeah it's brilliant great bit of design Incredibly worthwhile. I like that a lot. Yeah. Yes. Uh, I have got um, a painter that uh, I saw uh, an article on. Uh, sorry, an artist uh, that I saw an article on recently. And he's a sci-fi artist, really. But I'd never heard of him. He's called Stephen C. Harvey. Um, and he creates these incredible um, drawings of kind of sci-fi buildings and cars and planes. And I'm, I'm kind of astonished that I've never seen his work anywhere before. I think it must be because he's a, um, an artist rather than um, an illustrator. 
Um, and his work is just astonishing. Really uh, detailed drawings. <laughs> Sorry, I was just trying to find something. The link so, I put up has got <laughs> like a tiny little picture. So you're the court stenographer. <laughs> <this year. laughs> it's, it's actually really hard to find pictures of his work. Right. Um, I can't see it. I they, can only see it's just sort of a sketch of yeah, some fuselage. Tiny little picture. Um, I'll do the show notes. I'll, I'll find some better images. But they look a little bit like um, like traffic scenes from Mega City 1 in 2000 AD. Okay. Um, a little bit like kind of 1950s sci-fi, kind of Gernsbachian type stuff. Uh, I, his stuff absolutely blew me away. Um, I've got to find out a bit more about him. But so is he hard to find out about and he's not all over the internet because he sounds I, brilliant? <laughs> I think I think it's because he's an artist rather than an illustrator. Right. So he's not prolific on, you know, he doesn't exist, I don't think, on social media. Um, but I will I'll definitely find some more stuff, stick it on the, the show notes. I might even do a little blog post about him. Right. Because uh, his stuff is is astonishing. But talking about astonishing futurism, uh, I'm doing the segue. I am nailing this. I, I should drink beer more You've often. Been practicing. Um, I saw a video posted on Instagram by a guy called Paul Boag, who we've spoken about on the show before. He's kind of mm. a designer. He talks about the internet a lot. Um, he's he's got a great podcast called Boag World. Yeah. Um, yeah. He's he's an all round decent fellow. I think um, he has. I don't know whether he got it for Christmas or whether he's bought himself one. He's bought a Mavic Pro drone, yep. um, which I'd never heard of. Um, yeah, these I, are kind of like the, is it the DJI Parrot type yeah. competitor, aren't they? No, I think they're, they're made by them. It's their new one. Oh, is that their yeah. new one? Oh, okay. It's their, uh, their consumer. It's a sub one. Mm. Th- so it's under £1,000. It's 4K video on it. Um, and it is astonishing <laughs> the quality i saw it i was like how much have you spent on a drone but it's yeah, less it's than a thousand pounds which is kind of almost less than a really good camera and the quality on it is astonishing yeah. um, and so i was i was thinking of, I, I was wondering what it was so i looked it up and there's a guy called casey neistat have you heard of him no. Um, I've watched it well he's a kind of an internet one of these internet celebrities who's on youtube because okay. he's famous, because he's famous, because he's famous. Yeah. But actually, I knew him be- because he'd, uh, I think it was on, it might have been on Saturday Night Live or something like that. They played one of his videos where he was trying to highlight the uh, the lack of bicycle lanes in New York by riding his bike at full speed um, and just videoing the oh. results. Did was, you ever see was that? Was that where he, he videoed himself just kind of cycling Colliding into, into Yes, yeah. I have seen that. I didn't realise that was the same thing. No. Yeah, well, he's he's demoed this he has been given yeah. a mavic pro and he's a filmmaker now uh, is what mm. he does primarily so he absolutely nails the sort of the features of it the the, the fact that you can uh, give it a, a target location and get it to go and hover to it it will take a photo when it leaves you and then when it flies back it, it's constantly matching photographs to the to the image that it's taken and it can land within an inch so that so the uh, so it's the manufacturer astonishing isn't it and it's available for under a thousand pounds rob this isn't a thing that's going to cost you 30 grand or well, that's it that's the crazy thing it, it sounds like you know some really high tech bit of military hardware doesn't it yeah but also the design of it it's absolutely beautiful it fo- basically the uh, you know these drones are four they have four uh, helicopter blades yeah. or whatever and normally you have to pop them on and um, and it's quite a big sort of probably 
polypropylene kind of body well yeah. this thing is more like a uh more like a uh, a tripod so so it folds out and the yeah. the actual propellers are kind of self-weighted so it's only when you turn it on that they click into place so you, it's very hard to break yeah. them you don't have to put them on yeah, so yeah. the arms it, it's almost like a, a transformer and it'll fit in a backpack it's uh, it's an astonishing bit of kit i think it comes I, in orange <laughs> it's kind of dark gray but um yeah. you know i'm not normally one to uh to get too excited about tech but this thing is the future <clears throat> Yeah, it's going to be interesting because there's lots of people buying drones, aren't they? And there's you know there's there's ones that you can buy for like a hundred quid or whatever. But uh, anything that weighs over is it two kilos? You right. need to register, and you can only yeah. use them in certain areas. And, um, you know, you can't fly them in public spaces. Apparently, and you can't fly them in the royal parks. So yeah. No, I mean, I, but I think this one is a kind of like embryonic version of what they're going to be like in the fact that it can recognize shape. So if it mm. comes up against something, it will stop and it will, it will, it will move around it. It's not just a dumb device. Um, and uh, I think we're, we're certainly with that product as a, as a, as a consumer product, we're way further ahead than I thought we were in terms of uh, self, self-aware drone technology it yeah. really is astonishing i know that it will go wrong and there are issues with it but for this to be sold and it's absolutely you know it's working as 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 advertised is is quite mm. quite amazing yeah lovely looking bit of kit yeah i'd quite like one i can't justify having one but i'd quite like one. no i'm just going to try and convince my photographer friends to buy one yeah yeah that's a good idea <laughs> Uh, my next bit of news is um, something that I think we should go have a look at at the Cartoon Museum, which I think is just off Regent Street. Um, it used to just be a cartoon kind of art shop, um, and they kind of rebranded it as Cartoon Museum. Uh, oh, not, not, not a museum of uh, a city of Sudan, is what I was talking no, about. No, <laughs> not Khartoum. I've had too much Gordon's. <laughs> Very good. Um, <laughs> uh, Future Shock, 40 years of 2000 AD. Um, the 40th anniversary of this year of 2000 AD, our favourite comic. Fabulous. Um, and they've got a, an exhibition. Um, lots of original art. Um, yes, I think we should go. Yes. That's I'm pretty much it. all I have to say about this. We should go. Okay. It's on until... Uh, Oh, April, I think, sometime. Well, it's all clicking into place. I'm doing well. This is my next <laughs> story is about Lego. Yeah. Uh, as always, always try and mention Lego. But um, Lego Life is a new social network that Lego have launched uh, aimed at kids um, where they can show off their creations and discuss builds and all kinds of things like that. Um, and it is kid only. Um, and to get around comments, they have created an icon-based language, which I think is absolutely brilliant. You know, it is Lego thinking as Lego think in a yeah. really positive way. Um, so none of the it's been designed. They've re, they have withdrawn some of the icons that they felt could be used negatively. So none of the icons can be used in a negative way. Yeah. They, um, so there are a series of uh, the Lego minifig heads. We should we should get um, Donald Trump. 
so that he can only respond to Twitter with these Lego icons. Well, the, the, the cure for, uh, for for all of this is, um, you know, Twitter has become just a, a, a septic tank of humanity, hasn't it, really? Um, it's just to, it's to turn it off, you know. They're, they're not making any money. What's the point? And just stop it. Where is it going to go? You know, just turn it yeah, off. But where would you get all your cat gifts from then? <laughs> Um, I don't understand. No, I turn it off. If I was, uh, I like if I was president, <laughs> uh, I like this idea. Though I like, I, I think obviously uh, some sort of social network network specifically for kids. That you know they've got to be really on the ball with comments and bullying and things, even if mm. it is just Lego. Yeah, absolutely. It's so a, a clever, clever way of dealing with it. Yeah, I like it. I, I like the fact that kids can share designs. I'm not sure if I'd have wanted to have done that when, you know, I, I found Lego was not a social uh, thing when I was a kid. It, no, I never it was very much, Lego, very much um, uh, a solo activity. Um, something that, you know, I've always excelled at. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I remember Lisa Sturdy coming around, uh, one of my first girlfriends coming around to my house once after school. And I pretty much ignored her while I built um, some technical technic Lego. So yeah, it was very, <laughs> it was very solitary. <laughs> so sorry, Lisa, if you're listening. <laughs> uh, I've got another um, art uh, link. I'm I've got a a love hate relationship with hyper realist art. I really love a lot of hyper-realist art and I really hate a lot of hyper-realist art. I think when it gets to a point where it's indistinguishable from photography, it bores me because just take a photograph. Um, there's a guy called, do you know Chuck Close? American yep. painter. His stuff I absolutely love um, because I think you can a lot of his stuff is very stylized, but even his kind of hyper-realist sort of pencil drawings and paintings, you can still see there's, um, you can still see the brush marks, you can still see technique, you can still tell it's art. I think when it crosses over into just kind of seamless uh, recreation of what you can see and it becomes like a photograph. It, it just bores me. Um, and I've discovered someone else who I think was a contemporary of um, Chuck Close um, called Ralph Goings. Do you know of Ralph Goings? No. No, never heard of him. Um, so he was... Has he, has he gone? He hasn't gone, I don't, I don't think. No. His website says is a realist painter. All right. Um, but he was part of the hyper-realist group of the late 60s. And in particular, he's done a series of paintings in American diners. Mm. And they are just gorgeous. I'm but looking really, at them I mean, now. I, I, love, I love the close-up stuff. Um, is, yeah. that, is, that the, what, is that the diner that Superman... Uh, I don't know. It looks a bit like it, doesn't it? Gets a bit funky in. Is that Maybe Superman 2? Maybe they all... Yeah, Superman 2. They all look a bit like that, though. Mm. America, those American diners in Airstream caravans and things. Of course they do. But I like—I really like this guy's work because you can see there's there's a painterly aspect to it. Even the incredibly detailed diner scenes with all the reflective chrome and all the different textures and things. I think you can still tell. And 
for me that's necessary for me to enjoy it as a as a painting well they 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 are reminiscent though of um sort of early 3d renders aren't they do you think i don't know they they remind me more of sort of norman rockwell paintings right or maybe it's the color palette is that slightly sort of desaturated kind of 50s feel to it Mm. um but yeah i think they're beautiful so ralph goings well Mm. worth looking up Uh, and that concludes my news jonathan have you got anything else you want to share with us i've got a really funny one that my wife shared with me um the uh, being as a you know i like i like a i like a game i like a war game Mm. uh one that i don't particularly like but uh that has been in the news this week is warhammer Forty Thousand. um you ever heard of that one Uh, i have yeah uh petter the um animal right what does petter stand for am i uh people uh ethical treatment of animals Mm. people for the ethical treatment of animals something like that have you you seen the news story this week about this i i had a look (laughs) i've had a look before we came on air Uh, (laughs) this is silly um so they have been uh they have uh basically demanded that games workshop who produce uh, a series of plastic miniatures set in the year forty thousand. Um, who are space wolves uh, who wear fur that they should uh, get rid of the fur that's on their plastic um, figures. Um, I mean, the world's yeah. gone mad, but it's, it's, it, it's uh, you know, yeah, it's gone mad. I guess uh, from Petter, Peter's uh, point of view, this is just a great way to get their name in the news. Yeah, absolutely. It must uh, just be that. Yeah, you know, no, there can't no, be any serious. No, I see it as totally. Uh, but the fact that they, um, you know, I think yeah, highlight that in your social media. But do you have to write to the MD to complain about it? Um, <laughs> but then I, I sort of, I was on their site scrolling around, and, and they've got a lot of um, naked women um, saying naked skins. You know, doing the advertising for. Yeah, yeah. Uh, there was that whole thing, wasn't it? I'd rather go naked than wear fur. That was, was it. Their, um, was their campaign? Well, isn't that? exploitation in itself yes i don't know uh, anyway yeah so these imaginary creatures that um live in a in a world that is devoid of any compassion or humanity uh, that is constantly at war with every single faction um is no should just take <clears throat> take a deep breath um strip off the furs that have been uh, that have been uh, shed by imaginary creatures that are full of hate and bile yeah. and, uh, and take a good look at themselves in the mirror. Yeah. That is one of the most ridiculous, uh, news items we've featured, I think. <laughs> uh, but, uh, those little Warhammer figures are great, aren't they? <laughs> They're a lot more detailed than they used to be when I, when I was collecting them. Yeah, well, I, I, we were playing um, Blood Bowl yesterday, um, yeah. and they're you know they're from that. Um, and none of my um, none of my team wear furs, by the way. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, That's good we, to know. John. They're all on a vegan diet. They're all um, yeah. Mine are human as well. Oh, um, uh, they the yeah the Christmas of the edge of plastic technology now oh god what did i just cross the rubicon there didn't i but the yeah the uh the detail that they can get in in 
in injection molding is astonishing. Yep. Brilliant, brilliant story. Yeah, I agree. Um, and well done, Petter, for making a story out of absolutely nothing. <laughs> <laughs> it's not like uh, there's enough news at the minute, is there? Um, anything else? Is it, time for, is it time for a discussion? Yeah. Um, the other one, one thing, oh, robots. Uh, I was just, I, was, I sent you a text in the week. If everyone loves robots and they might be uh, listening to this because they love um, Rob Turpin, they certainly won't be here because they love me. Um, oh, come on now. That, uh, it's an My mum for one. Uh, it's here it's, entirely because of you. And she hates robots. Um, <laughs> uh, Isaac Asimov, there's a sort of robot season on Radio 4 next week. Um, I haven't found out much more about it, but there are there are documentaries and all sorts, but there's also a radio play um, uh, featuring Isaac Asimov's classic iRobot. Mm. So, uh, yeah, give it a listen. Cool. I've been listening to so much stuff on iPlayer while I've been at work this week. I just absolutely love it. There's so many weird little documentaries you can listen to and you documentary could just, strands. You could, you could stay on Radio 4 for the rest of your life, couldn't you? Absolutely. It's just, it's, I can't sing its praises highly enough. Long live the BBC. Right. Our main discussion this week, Jonathan, yep. is about... Colour. Colour. <laughs> uh, which, uh, in your notes, you've put uh, your greatest weakness. So you're dreading this chat. I'm terrible with colour. Like, yeah. Really bad when it comes to design or kind of colouring my illustrations or painting. Absolutely hopeless with colour. I think which is why I love working in black and white ink or black ink uh, so much because it just takes that pain away. Um, or why I tend to just stick with a a palette that consists entirely of orange. <laughs> I'm sitting here just with my teeth clenched together, wincing at the thought of me talking about colour. Um, well, no, because I think a lot of people uh, find colour quite tricky. Um, you know, whether it's decorating their house or, you know, from a design point of view, coming up with colour palettes or... You know, I, th- I think it's easy to come up with something basic, but to get something more sophisticated is is really tricky. Um, and I, well, I certainly find it tricky. What, 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 how are we going to how are we going to approach this then? Because uh, obviously, it's it's the ultimate kind of connection between you and a client, where it's really, really hard to uh, to have any scientific fact behind you without. Uh, I don't know. It's really, really hard to argue a scientific point about colour. Um, it is, because with a the client. client can just say, but I don't like green. Well, also because of that kind of, you know, uh, a couple of years ago, the, dre- the the blue, black, gold, white dress thing. Yes. Where everybody's perception of a colour is completely different. And we're now viewing on devices. In fact, I'm looking at now, I'm looking at my iPad Pro sitting in front of my uh, screen Colours are completely different. Uh, my iPad Pro has gone into nighttime mode, so it's slightly orange. Of course. The other one's yeah. bright blue because I've got it set up to um, daylight. So, um, yeah, it's so subjective, which is, I think, why I become so nervous about it because it's always a discussion with a client. I know it's almost impossible to win. Yeah. Um, but 
I think I've probably just dragged us off course massively. No, that. not at all. Uh, I think that's a it's an important part of it, isn't it? Yeah, I mean, I, I I've written in my notes. You know, I have no ground training or uh, confidence that I'm picking the right color when I pick colors. But um, is there a well, my uh, training didn't help. <laughs> is there a science behind color? I mean, I know there is a science. There are lots. There's an enormous amount of science. But in choosing a color, is there a science or is it a gut feeling that you've just got to go with? And hope, and hope that the brief has kind of brought you to that point of, of choosing the right colour. I think from a design point of view, you you can approach it in a, a zillion different ways, can't you? You could go th- entirely the scientific view and talk about colour theory and complementary colours and um, the science between, behind how colour makes people feel. Or you can just you know, zero in on something in the brief or you could, you could look at the, uh, color of the tie that the client is wearing in your first meeting. <laughs> That's very true. Um, <laughs> my, hang on a sec. My wife has just come into, uh, into my office and she has got my pie with a candle lit sticking in the top of it. Happy first birthday. <laughs> An oh, she's yeah. saying happy birthday. Thanks Jess. I will say my pie has arrived in its own tin. Marvelous. That's all I'm saying at this point. <laughs> quite jealous. I know what it is. I'm quite jealous. <laughs> Thank you. Um, yes, yeah, so I think you can you can approach. I'm going to blow uh, it out and make a wish. Okay. I'm wishing for a website. <laughs> <laughs> I thought you were going to say you're with, wishing for some show notes. <laughs> so you can. I think you can approach the. The, the choosing of colours and a, a palette for a project in in a myriad of different ways. But I think when it comes down to it, it's still, like you say, it's very subjective. And that end decision is the kind of fine tuning of those colours is just going to come down to you. Mm. Unless you, you want to kind of abdicate that responsibility and use some of the tools that are available to choose colours. Um, yeah. Well, before well, we get me, on to, before we get into that, let's back up to you talking about you know your monochrome palette because uh, I, I when I did a lot of drawing was exactly the same. What, why do you think? Do you think that's a lack of confidence, or do you think that's do you just prefer a world in black and white? No, it's entirely a lack of confidence with color. Really? Well, yeah, I, it's it's hard to ruin a drawing if you either don't use any color or only use one. No, there can be, um, but there can be plenty of bad drawings in in black and white, can't there? Um, oh, they can. But all I'm saying is, you know, if you've done a good drawing, it's a it's a good drawing, but it can easily be ruined by bad color. But would you say that um, photography, for example, um, black and white photography is often seen as the pinnacle of photography, and it's a, you know, black and white is always my favorite. I love I love a black and white palette in photography. But what, why well, is that? Isn't it? It's easy. Isn't it? No, it's easier than, mm. you know, to get a striking, memorable image in black and white is easier than in colour. Yeah. Because you've got one less thing to worry about, haven't you? Colour. <laughs> <laughs> uh, you, can, you can concentrate entirely on kind of tone and contrast and composition. And, and that can all be thrown out with the addition of colour. Mm-hmm. Because you can just concentrate on the shapes, which I guess is kind of how I see my illustration. Um, 
But that, does, that doesn't de- that doesn't demean your illustration, does it? I'd say your illustration is more powerful for the fact that it literally sticks to that single mindedness. Uh, yes, I mean to that extent that it has become a bit of a thing, though. You know, that's definitely my style these days, predominantly. I mm. think. Um, I think what what I find baffling about color, kind of particularly from an art point of view is how is how some people seem to see so much more color than me when you know when i was at art college or school studying art and we we were painting or using colored pencils to color things in and and for me you know the grass is green it might be two or three shades of green and the sky is blue and trees are green or brown and and then some people just innately seem to have this ability to see almost like another spectrum of color within the things that I see. So they'll, you know, draw a self-portrait or paint a self-portrait and it'll be purples and greens and, you know, deep ochres and stuff. I'll paint a self-portrait and it'll be pink. (laughs) You know, it's, can they see more color than me? Is there something psychological that prevents me just expressing colours or or recognising those colours? Am I just too literal? That's that's one of the most baffling things to me about colour. Is- we, we talked about that before, but from an approach of why do we love certain artworks? Um, mm. what, it, what is it about that? What is it? What is the combination of color, tone, shape, composition that suddenly clicks with a human being that makes them love that particular picture? Um, yeah. And is it innate in that creator, the person who's making that piece of art, to uh, see the world in a slightly different way? And I'm guessing that that is true, isn't it? The, the even you know going back to that. That dress was why it was so, picked up so much by popular media is because yeah. it kind of expresses that sort of randomness of humanity that we're it's very hard to um, to understand, especially today when we're so homogenized and so boxed into, you know, we're on one side of the argument or another where there's no nuance. Um, yeah. It's such an extraordinary, subjective, mythical, uh, mystical kind of state of of mind isn't it the fact that like you say somebody looking at a face francis bacon looking at a human being and seeing Mm. it as dripping kind of butcher's block flesh yeah and somebody else seeing it as pure realism and you know copying it off of a photograph with uh you know a very fine brush it's so so different isn't it and that you know taking that across to graphic design it's so hard to to give it um, to make a decision about color. It, it makes it really, really hard. Well, I think in design, I take a very similar approach to I do in um, illustration. So I'm very, you know, the more limited the palette, I just figure the less mistakes I can make. <laughs> I'm sure that's not true. I think the the more limited the palette, the uh, the, the harder you've worked to choose that colour, surely. Well, maybe. I mean, I have a, have a swatch, uh, a series of swatches of orange. I just uh, stick a pin in. <laughs> yeah, I bought just... some luggage today and it's bright orange. Yeah, you said. Yeah. Um, 
it's quite if it's, Steph hasn't seen it yet I'm not sure she realises quite how bright orange it is but. I was going to say you're not going to lose it but she might <laughs> yeah <clears throat> yes um, so how do you let's say you've got a, a new brief I think we've talked before about the way we both design things in that we quite often work entirely in black and white to begin with right up until the point where you show the client your first ideas for a, a new logo or something because that takes away that whole oh that's great but I really don't like the colour. No, they just can just focus on the important bit and you can go away and work on colour schemes after that. Um, but once you've got to that point, how do you how do you work on a colour? Well let's I, say let's say that they've said, you know, it can be it can be any colour you want, but it can't be green because that's all competitor. Yeah. And, and we don't like orange. <laughs> well, I'd normally when I, when I present the, the initial concept, it will either be, uh, it would well, it would normally be black and white, but I would have probably tried it out in colour before. So I have a kind of idea what colours work with it. Mm-hmm. Um, and the colour will be affected by, yeah, like you say, the, the, the brief that we've, that we've talked about, the limitations. Um, and if they particularly say they don't, they don't want a colour because of a really compelling reason, then I won't go there. But, other than that, I'll just ignore it because, you know, saying the competitor what, or... What's a compelling reason? A uh, compelling reason would be we're in a market where that colour is, you know, seen as a negative colour. Right. Um, so if you're working in uh, kind of healthcare or pharmaceuticals or something, obviously you can't use bright red, typically. Yeah. I don't know whether I... I'm trying to think of an example. Um where you where you would i mean i think if it was a being a, if i were you know let's let's say for a uh, sake of argument if i was a new company in a new business in finance i would definitely avoid um if i could avoid uh you know that 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 bright blue corporate look that everyone yeah goes with um having said that i've just done a branding that's in dark blue (laughs) but that was uh yeah i I would i would avoid that because i wouldn't want to be lumped in if i was like a if i was a disruptive uh business coming into that into that environment i will i'd want to look different i'd want to 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 be different so my my color my color choices are defined by by brief um the, the flip side of that from a client's point of view is yeah but you know everyone else's is kind of blue so we want to make sure that you know people realize we're in that same yeah well marketplace well so i mean some some businesses financial um markets uh financial services companies are incredibly conservative mm. as are solicitors that i've worked with yeah uh, as are most people actually um they're conservative and that all they all they are concerned with is beating the joneses but looking like the joneses <laughs> and the really yeah. the really good ones just let you get on and, and and do it but um i have i just have colors that i i go to you know it's like typeface isn't it i think the older you get as well the more set in your ways you get um and uh i i wrote you know mine mine started with black and yellow black and yellow um lego was my favorite combination everything yep. i made was black and yellow absolutely um, and i still use it now <laughs> if i can i love blacks um i love neutral colors uh and um 
I, li- I like oranges as well, but um, yeah, if I if I can use those, then I then I will do. But but mainly, I'm you know, I said before, I'm a jobbing graphic designer who sort of has to adapt. So um, I'm talking around the subject here. I know choosing color, but um, well, that's it. So you say you know you've got a kind of a basic color palette. Then what? You can't just pick a green. How do you pick? Or how do you pick a green? How do you pick another? tone how do you pick something to go with that green yeah well there, there are lots of good tools aren't there um generally i'd start with a um well it depends on the brief but generally i'd start with a pantone book uh have a look through and then pick a single color and then work some tones on it so i'd probably go into a, an app like cooler is that still around mm-hmm. Uh, it is it's just called adobe color now right and um and then pick some uh triad colors it depends how many colors I want to use. Um, but that would be based on their budget as well. So most of my budget kind of clients, hang on, depending on their budget, they, they only get one color. No, I, generally, I'm sorry, but I'm sorry, but you can have a lovely logo, but you're not paying me enough to get more than one color. (laughs) No, I would be thinking about print process. So if I was a small, small business, um, then invariably most small businesses don't care and will go with, um, digital print. So I'm thinking for color, I can choose a whole wide range of colors. It doesn't really matter if I'm now dealing and, and I am increasingly dealing with medium to larger businesses, they have a much bigger print budget. So it's much more likely that I'll get a two color, three color print job that I can use specific Pantones on, which sounds yeah. really mealy mouthed, but, um, but that's, that's reality, isn't it? Most people don't understand that kind of yeah. technology. So they, you know, they just want digital print that's cheap and easy. So, yeah, so now I'm dealing with, with spot colors, I would really be thinking about, okay, well, how can I save them a few pounds by, you know, a few quid by blending colors, having tones of colors, whatever. So that would then, that would severely limit the palette. And and often the choice is based on that. It's not based on the color I like or the color that the client likes. It's like, how many colors can we make out of these two or three colors? Um, yeah. Admittedly, I've only done that a few times. Um, normally, it's just yeah, it's everyone just chooses whatever color they like, don't they? Um, I've, def- I've definitely said uh, yeah. Most designers have no idea about color management <laughs> whatsoever, and don't care, and just you know, well, you the printer come has to print, deal with that. You come from a print background, so you've probably got a better idea than most. Yeah, I, I, I've seen I've seen a lot of uh, of strange things. Um, I've seen some very professional uh, approaches to color, um, but I think then. It also, it depends on the printer you work with. I mean, some printers are, are very forgiving and will iron out an awful lot of issues, um, you know, before things are printed, won't they? Yeah. Um, it's it, it comes back, doesn't it, to the, um, to the subjectiveness of colour. So uh, if you've got uh, an MD who sees colour in a particular way and you, all you're doing is matching the colour to suit his or her tastes yeah then that's what you've got to do haven't you um you can't uh you can't keep um referencing them back to the fact that it looked okay in the pantone book you've got to adjust the color on press to suit their perception of what that color is and that makes it incredibly difficult um i've said it i've said it before i think i mentioned before sainsbury's uh, i'm not sure if it's still now uh still like that now but their brand color is one of the most bizarre i've ever 
the bizarre color sort of matching systems I've ever seen. And the fact that they just produce a single color, uh, like a plastic swatch and you have to match to that color. They give you some guidelines and they give you some indications as to what those colors might be. But they don't give you like a a Pantone or a CMYK breakdown. They just say, depending depending how you're printing it, match this. Yeah. So their their orange is actually actually a blend of, I think uh, I'm going to sound really naive here to somebody who's a Sainsbury's designer, but I think it's a blend of two oranges. It's not a single Pantone color. So again, it's, they're still, they're blending Pantone colors. It's incredibly technical. So if you're a digital printer or a large format printer, which is probably the, the majority of their brand, I should say Sainsbury's by the way, is a, a large supermarket in the UK. Uh, Yeah. And it's very orange and it's like Rob Turpin's favorite supermarket. Um, <laughs> so their, their color, um, you know, when it's on a, I'd say the majority of their color is going to be in store or on the outside or on hoardings around the, around the uh, supermarkets. So it's normally large format who have to match it the closest. Um, they are matching to normally four color, aren't they? So they have to, they have to match it by hand and then send the samples back to the design agency and get approval that way that's well, how it, kind it of works makes sense doesn't it because a, a company like that that color is going to be printed in so many different ways on so many different um sort of substrates and papers and plastics uh, it's going to be produced in uh, polycarbonate for for 3d lettering it's going to be on vans it's going to be vinyls the, the, yeah, and, and a set of guidelines just isn't going to be able to cover everything, is it? No, so, uh, it doesn't. You know, putting Pan, Pantone two hundred and eighty on a on a um, on brand guidelines doesn't help anybody, does it? It, it gives you a starting block, but it doesn't. Yeah. It doesn't take you. F- if you're a big brand, that doesn't get you anywhere. It, um, you'd have, you know, well, as soon as you hit the Perspex range, you've only got I don't know how many colors they got thirty odd colors. So, mm. you know, you've got to choose, then choose a, a Perspex color. And you've got to specify a RAL color and a British standards color and all, all those kind of things. So um, I think the, the, the big, my biggest eye opener was years ago, I was sent on a Hewlett Packard color management course, which was run by a Dutch guy. And he was in, really inspirational. And he sort of opened my eyes into color management. We'd never been doing any kind of color management. And, and he said, you know, uh, most you know, the, the whole process is broken. Um, and if it starts with a designer who doesn't use uh, color profiles or doesn't understand how they, they work, then you're yeah. dealing, you're dealing with a, you know, a really wriggly eel of a color. You, you don't know how that color is perceived. So trying to output that color is, is impossible, absolutely impossible because the designer has, doesn't know what that color should be. And that's yeah. why, that's why we have Pantone color, color books but then you pick up two or three pantone color books all the colors are different they don't match they never match yeah pantone has just become impossible to understand i think <laughs> it's such a difficult I, I, and that's why we come back to the sainsbury's approach to it of, of just producing a single color almost like a swatch um yeah. that's just a one single item that you then have to match that really does get rid of all of those issues it means that everybody has to work incredibly hard to try and attain that color you know the the other thing is you just take your hands off the wheel and let the colors come out however you like but <clears throat> yeah um and then you end up with the real world don't you 
<laughs> but yeah, it is. It's, 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 and, and so that's why I say it's such a science in when you get into the kind of color management. Um, the fact is, you know, if you take a, so, so say you design something on a screen and you've designed it in Adobe RGB and then you uh, send it to the client and they're viewing it on, uh, on a window screen. Well, that's going to be in an sRGB space. So it's a slightly smaller space, uh, smaller color space. So the colors might be cropped a little bit. So yeah. for, therefore, you know, your reds might be, uh, slightly, um, muted and your blues might be less bright etc etc and then you take that that client takes that color and then they pass it onto their printer and they ask them to match it well that's already two versions away it's from like, what the Chinese designer saw isn't it? yeah it's a yeah it really is and so um and so that's why when you said let's discuss color it's like and i'm trying to say well it's a subjective it's almost like a magical thing but actually, you know once you start looking into the science of it it's so complex so varied and uh, and impossible to manage. I mean, it really is. Uh, um, so it just opens up a massive can of multicolored worms. It was much, much easier back in the days when we got our colors from um, crunching up beetles. <laughs> How did we do that? I much prefer- <laughs> preferred it when we only had, you know, George, George, up, George Harrison crunch- Green, <laughs> yeah, Ringo Red. <laughs> and. Um, and word i liked a bit of word um <clears throat> yeah it's color has come a long way since um those days of of kind of natural pigments hasn't it have i just been talking about color for the last hour i think i might yeah have done. um and i thought i wouldn't be able to speak about it no i, yeah. I couldn't seemed- shut you up <laughs> uh so what tools do you use then to um to manage color oh to manage color I, I'm one of or those to choose, co- choose color. I'm one of those designers who doesn't manage color at all for my own clients. When I'm working at a client, like I'm working in Shoreditch at the minute for uh, two big brands, everything is from a, an artwork point of view. Everything is specified to their uh, color setups in in design, Illustrator and Photoshop. Everything gets proved, sent to the client, checked, sent back, tweaked. Uh, you know, we check things on press. So that's, that's one side of it. If I'm doing things for, you know, some of the small businesses I work for, well, you know, I just, I don't manage color at all. But what I use, uh, in terms of picking colors, um, Adobe color, which used to be cooler. Um, like you said, I think is a great little tool. Um, I really like the ability to, to create swatches from images because quite often that's a nice kicking off point for me. Yeah, they've got because a fant- I, they've got a fantastic app, haven't they? Um, yeah, it's brilliant. Like, oh, it's amazing. Really cool. But I often I get to that point. I, I haven't. Sometimes I don't have a, a clue where I'm going to go with the color. Mm-hmm. So an image that's perhaps been supplied by the client or or something like that is is a really nice kicking off point. So I'll use Adobe Cooler for that or Adobe Color. Um, there's another one called Color Lovers, which I've used a couple of times really just to kind of have a, a gander at it's kind of an online community where people upload their swatches and palettes and things and it's generally dreadful but you you know you might see a little <clears throat> gem in there um and i think the other thing i do is i just look around at stuff um whether it's art books design books not stealing palettes but you know you get ideas um 
I think we talked, um, was it before Christmas? I can't remember. We talked about, um, I mentioned the Acton Baby album by U2. Um, I think which was designed by Anton Corbin, the, the CD case. <clears throat> uh, and that really influenced my kind of colour choices back then when that was released in, I don't know when that was, mid-90s. Um, so I'll quite often go to, to art or design for inspiration. Um, and then when I kind of get into, you know, if I, I find a colour that I think works, I kind of cheat and I'll go into something like, I'll go into Illustrator maybe and I'll uh, create uh, a block of block of the colour that I kind of think works and then I'll invert it and then I'll do uh, maybe an eight-step blend between those two colours. And that gives me a starting point of a palette. Um, and I think that that's probably a really safe way of doing it because I don't think you get any terrible colour choices that way. But it also probably means you don't get any brilliant ones. I think it's quite a safe way of doing it. Yeah. I don't know. I think that's a perfectly good way. I mean, the, the colour wheel in Illustrator is really, really handy. Um, mm. So you can create multiple uh, copies of a piece of artwork and then colour them all up differently uh, yeah. based on tone or hue or um, saturation or whatever. Um, so, yeah, I use that a tremendous amount. Um, I think that that new new tool in Illustrator is, is, is great and it's missing from... should be in Photoshop, really, shouldn't it? It should. Um, so yeah, no, I I rely on it on exactly the same way, um, and I also say you know get a Pantone book, whether um, you know they're incredibly expensive, but it gives you a good ground, a good base model. You, you could even just use a paint swatch. Do you know what I mean? Uh, I've got if absolutely. I, I, I open up my color drawer here. Hang on. <laughs> I've got a color drawer. I've got uh, I've got all the latest. Uh, I've got Perspex in there. Um, I've got I've got a Rao book. Uh, British standards, um, yeah, and and vinyl. So uh, they they're really good um, limiting palettes uh, that are mass produced. So they're really good ones to go to. So especially, yeah. especially vinyl, I definitely have a look at exhibition matte vinyls if nobody's got any of those kind of things because they have a really wide range of uh, of or, as some of them have panto matched vinyls okay. um so they are within the range of pantone so they're really good limiting colors that are used by lots of brands because obviously the demand has to be high enough to run vinyl presses yeah um so vinyl i'm talking about you know like sticky letters uh signage and all that kind of stuff um i know we print a lot of digital now but you know even digital isn't for color it very seldom has been for color i mean it's like what are we up to now 10 yeah my new ones are nine color sure. but the new the newer ones are 10 i think uh, yeah so they can produce 90 the new epson has got a violet in it and it can produce 99 percent of the adobe rgb palette on a Jeez. on a printer so we're not talking cmyk anymore so you don't have to convert to cmyk wow yeah God, i can't imagine what the prints look like coming off that yeah, well, they were they won't be as good as um, as using a normal photographic uh, large format printer. Uh, they yeah, won't they're be. Gonna as, be they're going to be really vivid, aren't they? They're going to be really close to um, how you design on 
you know, Illustrator or whatever you're or in yeah. design or whatever you're in. Um, much more reliable for, yeah, than uh, than just a standard uh, desktop printer. Mm. Anyway, uh, yeah. So, um, so yeah, mine. So we're, we're sort of yellow, black, and orange. Is, yeah, is what it's kind of about. like uh, heavy machinery palette. <laughs> Uh, what's the what's the orange kind of chainsaw? Is it Husqvarna that make chainsaws? Are they are they the orange ones? Is that what they're called? Yeah, no, I know yeah. I know what you're talking about. Yeah, <coughs> definitely. Yeah. And then obviously sort of JCBs and things, and the black and yellow. Yeah, I love all that stuff. <clears throat> hmm. When I well, was um, when I was looking through uh, kind of bits and pieces on color, I, I came across this uh, link to an article about the Harvard Library. Uh, the Forbes pigment pigment collection, and they're they're a bit like the the you know there's the World Seed Bank that yeah. collects all the. Oh, I saw you'd bit, written that down there. Were they yeah. recording color? They're collecting all the. It started by a guy called Forbes, Edward Waldo Forbes in America, and he collected. Uh, was he was, it, was he a poor man? <laughs> Waldo <laughs> Forbes. I know. Uh, he started collecting, making this red, red and stripy tops. <laughs> no. I, <laughs> Sorry, I shut up. Where is he? I can't. Um, <laughs> he started collecting all these pigments in order to be able to um, uh, uh, conserve uh, old paintings properly using the original pigments, so he could, you know, uh, auth- authentically. I, I want to use the word "touch up," but I, I didn't quite do it justice. Um, but yeah, he was looking for restore. authentic restore. That's the word I was searching for. So he could restore paintings authentically. Uh, and now this is part of a, a Harvard um, art museum, Strauss Center for Conservation and Technical Studies. But in this article, there's a there's a a few little. He, he talks about um, every pigment has its own story. So it talks about synthetic ultramarine, which was uh, discovered as a result of a contest. Um, and lapis lazuli, which was more expensive than gold, um, cochineal, which is the red dye that comes from squashed beetles, and one that I'd never heard of, um, mummy brown. Did you know of the pigment mummy brown? No. People would harvest mummies from Egypt, then extract the brown resin no. material that was on the wrappings around the bodies and turn that into a pigment. What? It was very popular in the 18th and 19th centuries. Oh, yeah. There you go. And there's a picture of a tube of mummy brown, bitumous pigment from mummies embalmed with asphaltum. Wow. There you go. So every wow. pigment has a story. You don't get that with Pantone 346, do you? No, I love the stories about paint um, yeah. and how uh, it drove trade, didn't it? And mm. just incredible things like that. Yeah, absolutely. Wow, that sounds like an amazing place to go to. Yeah. Where's have you that? been to? Uh, it's in America, Harvard. Mm. Uh, have you? They, were, been... they won't let me in. I'm from Hampshire. <laughs> yes. Uh, have you been to Cornelson's? I know we've talked about this before. Now, if you hum it, I can sing it. It's the. Uh, it's in Hoban, and it's a 200 year old art supply shop, and they sell pigments in the kind of big, old fashioned, heavy really? glass jars. Wow. And you, it's for people who make up their own oil paints, so you can get the powdered pigments, and then they've got like a whole section on different oils. Um, but you walk into it, and it is just an absolute 
treasure trove to to look at. It's so beautiful. All these big jars of pigments and paints and things. Cornelson's marvelous. The last time I went there, I bought a pencil sharpener. That's all I could afford. <laughs> it was, of course, a cum pencil sharpener. Of course, the best. Long yes. point. Yes, long point. Um, website of the week, Rob. Are we done uh, with color? Let's I go back. Let's 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 fade back. Let's fade it back to monochrome. I feel I feel more comfortable. I'm glad well, we got through that. And actually, we spoke for quite a long time. Well, yeah, I did. Good. I'm sorry. Yeah, you waffled on. Um, well, talking of monochrome, um, my website of the week is the NASA Cassini space probe website. So it was launched, uh, Cassini probe, orbiting around Saturn. It um, was launched uh, about 15 or 16 years ago. Um, took five or six years to reach Saturn and has done amazing work. And its its mission has been extended and extended and it, it discovered the um, lakes of frozen methane on Titan and the uh, geysers on Enceladus. Uh, incredible. And it's now entering the last year of its mission. So they're, they're now performing riskier and riskier maneuvers. And it, it's now, so now it's, they're swinging it much closer to Saturn and much closer to Saturn's rings. And it is sending back the most staggering pictures at the minute. The, the fine detail in Saturn's rings made up of these tiny little, well, everything from a, from a speck of kind of icy dust up to things that are the size of houses the rings are made out of but the the pictures it's sending back are in such incredible detail and the amazing things there's a, a moon called Daphnis which is a tiny little moon of just a few kilometers across and it orbits within the rings and it uh it almost um creates a, a gap uh, in Saturn's rings, but where Daphnis kind of passes by the rings, it creates these gravitational waves, and the pictures of Daphnis and the rings and the the effect it has on the the rings are just staggering. Um, so if you're remotely interested in science or space or astronomy, uh, just go have a look at the Cassini website. Um, it's Remarkable, and it's only going to get better. They're going to fly it um, through the gap in the rings uh, next month, I think. Wow, I'm, I will have a look at that later. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> my website of the week is uh, a chap that you've introduced me to. Um, he is a diarist, I'd say, a blogger, um, a design archivist, mm. um, a brilliant writer. Uh, an all-round nice chap and he's made a product and i urge everyone who's listening to this to go and buy it because uh, i really really want one he's um he's made a uh, a marber grid which is the classic grid used on penguin covers uh, during the 60s was it 70s yeah, I guess maybe so. um so you can go to his uh, website which is acejet170.typepad.com snappy that one <clears throat> i think you can uh, leave out the type pad actually can you you can uh, uh richard weston um and he's made these amazing um what, what would you call them Rob? they're like graphic display they're thread and pins that well, the replicate thing I like about them 
So the thing I like about them is that there's a little, although it's like a homage to the Marble Grid, there's, there's almost another little homage to those kind of nail and string drawing, painting kind of from thing. The 70s. From the 70s. From the 70s. You know, you do like an owl or That's something. exactly or what like. I thought. Um, but this is obviously a much more sophisticated um, and elegant version. But also that chap that we were talking about who did the map. Um, Richard Long, was it? Was his name Richard mm. Long? Yes, I think so. Anyway, I think they're beautiful, and um, I've I've uh, I've spoken to my wife about what I want for my birthday. Oh, um, I see. They're incredibly reasonable. They are sixty five pounds in a frame, or fifty five pounds unframed, um, and he hand makes each and every one. I've seen a picture of the pins that he's using, so he's not using slave labour. Or if he is, uh, they've got their own camera. So uh, go and uh, buy them because uh, I think they're absolutely beautiful. They're fantastic. And I, I hope like they them. lead on to other things because I think he's hit on something that is is quite a quite a lovely product. Well, if you follow him on Instagram, which I think is it ASJet170 or just ASJet on Instagram, um, try them both. Uh, he's got some other beautiful little things that he does. Um, with photography and watercolour paintings. Um, yeah, really gorgeous kind of visual little ideas. So yeah, I'm sure there'll be more to come after the Marble Grid. Yeah, and his blog is just infinitely fascinating. <clears throat> it is. Talking of Fantastic. infinitely fascinating, Rob, uh, yes. something that people listen to this show about is um, is is the humble pie. The humble pie? Mm-hmm. <laughs> what have you got? I've got a Frey Bentos, mate. Oh, I love a Frey Bentos pie. Do you? Yeah. So I, I do, do as well, actually. I, 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 it reminds me of being a student. Well, it's very. Um, it's also very seventies, isn't it? <laughs> it is. Um, I, uh, I've got a minced beef and onion here. My wife couldn't work out what the hell it was. Um, she bought it for me. She thought you'd boiled them. Oh. Uh-huh. Uh, but no, you have to uh, take the lid off, which she's done with great aplomb and then it's risen like for people who've never seen a Frey Bentos pie you need to describe it right it's a imagine tinned food it's a flat tin the pie is inside the tin you take the lid off and you put it in the oven and then the pastry puffs up yeah but puffs up in a kind of swamp thing (laughs) rise Uh, so yeah so that's what I've got it's about I don't know eight nine inches wide uh, in diameter it's like a big plate size pie isn't it yeah like you say I used to uh, survive on those my first few months at college before I learned how to cook doesn't look like there's much left inside no oh god (laughs) oh no (laughs) Has, uh, has nostalgia blinded you oh right okay well the 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 pie is burnt on top and roar underneath. <laughs> that always used to be a thing with the Frey Bontis pie. You, oh. There always used to be some uncooked pastry going on. Oh, the minces. Oh, no. It's like baby food. <laughs> I'm absolutely starving. That has no no appeal to me whatsoever. Um, it's, it's horrendous. Uh, it hasn't got enough salt, although it's mass-produced. Interestingly, Frey Bontis is... A, a, it's only, I thought this was an ancient thing, you know, when I say ancient, I mean, going back a hundred odd years, yeah. but, um, they st- they were, it's a newish product for the brave, the Frey Bentos line in 1958. Oh. Uh, yeah. Um, Frey Bentos was a German chap 
from uh, left Britain, um, created the Frey Bentos processing plant in Uruguay. Um, and uh, it went out to the First World War uh, as a corned beef, I think. Uh, but the pie, no, it's 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 gonna get. I think it's gonna get my lowest. I'm not even gonna eat it. It's it's my oh, lowest okay, score yeah. ever. It's gonna. I'm gonna give it a two. Oh, well, I'm not sure my pie is gonna fare much better. My wife went to uh, Marks and Spencer's today and uh, doing the shopping, and she was gonna buy me a pie. And she sent me photographs. She said, "Which which pies do you want?" And they were kind of gastropub pies there was chicken and ham pies lots of lovely looking pies and i said get me that one and she said really because i picked the worst pie kind of on purpose because you know so i picked a gluten-free mini pork pie and um so it looks like a normal mini pork pie but undercooked so it's really pale and slightly sort of sort of waxy pastry. And it smells awful. I don't know what it... <laughs> the pastry smells more like bread than pastry. Um, so I'll just... It does have jelly, though. It does have a little bit of jelly, which is a bonus. So I'll just... Excuse me. The pastry is awful. I mean, really, I can't even describe the pastry. It's almost like a a powdery soft biscuit. Um, the pie itself is all right, but you can't really you can't really get over the fact that that pastry is hideous. I don't know if people who are on gluten free diets just get used to the kind of gluten free versions of bread or pasta or pastry that's hideous. But that's quite a nasty shock for me. That's not on a gluten-free diet. Um, the meat itself is okay. It's nicely seasoned. The jelly's nice. But it's only getting a three. And I've finished my beer, which is terrible, because I could really do with washing that down with something. Mm-hmm. So that's a poor way to end our anniversary edition. I'm, I want to end on a, a bit of a serious note, Rob. Okay. It's time to talk day, apparently, today. Okay. Uh, which is a, a, you know, there are many, aren't there, every day. Um, mm. There's a there's a, an organisation called timetochange.org.uk. And they're getting to people to talk about mental health and, uh, and trying to keep the conversation going to improve people's um, ability to talk about uh, how they feel and their anxiety levels and all that kind of thing that I think the world is feeling a higher level of anxiety now. So, uh, yeah, go and talk to some loved ones and uh, give them a call if you haven't spoken to them for a while. Yeah, that's a good idea. We shouldn't be it's, – it's easy to, to lose touch with people or to put off talking to people, whether it's family or friends. And in this day and age, it's never been easier to to speak to people, has it? No, even just a text. Yeah, yeah. I don't, I don't, I don't think. I think what they're doing. I think it's quite a naive approach. I think that um, you know, it's trying to end mental health st- stigma. But you know, even people with corns don't want to talk about people. You know, about their corns. Um, I told you not the, to bring that up. Oh, sorry about that. Uh, but 
it affects a lot of people. So, um, yeah, I think it's just worth thinking about and, uh, and just reaching out if, um, anybody in your family is, uh, suffering from that. So just thought I'd mention that. Absolutely. Um, sorry to bring, to end on that kind of level. I just Not forgot to so. mention it earlier. Um, I think all our listeners, all hundred or so of them, including the good people of Guam should, uh, just go talk to someone. Like yeah. Pick up the phone or send a text. Uh, and just make sure everyone's all right. If yeah. everyone listens to this show, does that, then the world's going to be a tiny little bit of a better place. Yeah, we could all it, do with a bit of that. And if you're in Guam, just go outside and have a nice cocktail. Yeah. if you Actually, if you're in Guam, take a picture of you having a cocktail <laughs> in the sunset. <laughs> We'd love that. Picture. I'd tell you yeah. what, that would make my week. Month. Yeah. Year. Yes. Absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> all right. Well, thank you for listening, everyone. John, yeah. good to speak to you as yeah. always. It's good. We're back in the saddle and we yeah. are we are now committed to it, apart from the fact that you bugger off for your holidays in two weeks. Well, we might get a tropical episode. <laughs> I don't want a tropical episode. <laughs> I'm what taking Berry Berry or Yellow Fever. <laughs> I've got all their albums. Leave me alone. Stars with no good for making time in this life.